ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's the 15th of June, in the year 1215. A group of English nobles is gathering on a field beside the River Thames, a place called Runnymede. They're here to meet their king. And before they depart, they'll have extracted an agreement that not only limits the power of the monarch, but sets in place the relationship between those who rule and those who are ruled. It will become famous as Magna Carta, the Great Charter. But for the purposes of this program, well, let's call it the world's first social contract. It really began in a world that was shaped by monarchies. And so what is the relationship between that sort of absolute political leadership and the population? But it really changed and matured and came into being as we know it today tied really to the rise of the industrial economy. And so we came to understand the social contract in those terms as relationships between governments, business and citizens. But in Western democracies, I'm sure I don't need to tell you, there's a growing feeling that the type of social contract that came into being at the end of the Second World War, centred in large part around the notion of the welfare state, well, that it's broken and no longer fit for purpose. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense, and the very first program in our new 2024 series. Today, is the idea of the social contract still useful in the 21st century? How could it work in a globalised digital world? And what social, economic and political issues should it address? The social contract has a formal meaning in terms of the social safety net. What is it that all of us as citizens can expect in terms of social protections and who pays for that, paid jointly typically by governments, by businesses and by us as citizens in our through our taxes and other contributions and so on. So that's the formal meaning of it. Aaron Kramer, president and CEO of BSR, Business for Social Responsibility. We see this playing out in different ways in different places, both formally and informally. I'd say in Western economies, an informal element of the social contract is reflected in what we think is appropriate in terms of executive pay, which, of course, in my home country, the United States, is uh, in the eyes of many out of relationship to what is fair and just. So both formal and informal iterations of the social contract, and it's going to vary from country to country. And therein lies a central problem with the way the relationship between business, government and ordinary citizens is framed these days. A sense that the system is out of balance, that it's no longer fair and equitable. The level of trust in most of the institutions, like national governments, parliaments, political parties, the justice system, the corporations, is extremely low. Mark Flaubert, a professor at the Paris School of Economics. These things have two faces. So the positive face of uh, markets in general, innovation, 
and so on, is that it really uh, triggers a lot of good things in terms of productivity, in terms of access to material comfort, prosperity, and all that. This is still there in many ways, right? The problem is that the distribution of the risks and the benefits of these new things, these innovations, these new developments, these openings of barriers and so on, are not fairly distributed. And that's where the, the problem lies. So that's where the social contract idea is powerful. We need to rethink how the distribution of, of benefit and risks is distributed. So the, the technological shock, for instance, has affected old professions, and that's the crux of the crisis. Now, it's important to remember that the social contract that arose in Europe after the political, economic and social carnage of the mid-20th century wasn't just a kind of socialist utopian enterprise. It was also very much about preventing future conflict and war. It was about bringing fractured societies together and, crucially, building stability and cohesion. We saw the rise of social insurance in the wake of World War II and, and really in the wake of the Great Depression following that when, when it became clear that social protections were needed to avoid you know, impoverishment of the population and frankly political instability, which we also saw in the wake of World War I even. So we began to see things like unemployment insurance and health insurance and retirement accounts. And that's really how we think about the social contract today. Did it have resonance in the developing world? Yes. I mean, some of the elements that I just pointed to that evolved in the US and Europe in particular in the first half of the 20th century have also been implemented in other parts of the world. So you you would see it in Africa, you'd see it across Asia and in Latin America. It takes different forms, but you, you do see the same kinds of principles established. You know, China began opening up in terms of trade with the rest of the world really in the late 1980s. But it wasn't until the late 1990s that the country began to build a truly national social insurance system. So we have seen the concepts that were first developed in the West spread really to all parts of the world. Some would argue, particularly in the West, that the social contract is broken in the 21st century. Your thoughts on that? Well, I do think it's broken. If you consider the time when the core elements of the social contract today were developed, we were still in a world where you had the nuclear family, a husband and wife. Typically, the woman would not work outside the home. And very often, employment was for life. And there were fixed benefit retirement plans, pensions, and so on. That world is gone. It is absolutely gone. And we see many different forms of families. We see employment does not last for a lifetime. And indeed, people don't necessarily retire at whatever the retirement age is, let's say in the uh, in, in, in one's uh, 60s. And so for a variety of reasons, I would argue that we're still applying a 1947 definition of the world in the 2020s, which in my view doesn't really make any sense. The notion of shared prosperity and mutual obligation, how important have they together been for a workable social order? I think that's another reason why the social contract today may not be fit for purpose, because 
The arrangements in society that developed in the middle of the 20th century developed in societies that were much more homogenous than they they are today. And so I think that's just a, a reality. And we have much more migration than we ever have had before in human history. And most societies are, are struggling with integration and fairness and avoiding xenophobia and so on. So just the construction of society is more complex than it was in the middle of the 20th century. In my view, I think in many ways, that's very, very good. We are more diverse. We are more respectful of differences. People can express their own views and needs, have more agency. But I think it makes it harder for a society and for a government to say, here's the plan. It's one size fits all. It works for everybody because that's just not, again, that's not how people see the world so much right now. And so I think policymakers have a much more complex task in coming up with the kinds of protections and policies that are going to meet the needs across societies that are so much more diverse than they used to be. Frustration, the big frustration in the current situation is that in many ways the solutions are known, right? It's true that the conditions are, are no longer like they were in the 50s or the 60s. We have a much more open borders, especially to capital movements and to, and to commodity movements. We have a lot of things that are very different, much more um, connectivity across people and all that. So in a way, the global village is creating a big opportunity and also a big constraint. But I think we, we can adapt many of the recipes that have been working uh, previously with one challenge, which is that the scale probably should be different, right? So now we need, we can no longer think of uh, having a comfortable social contract, for instance, within a small country like France or Spain or even Germany. We need to think at the level of the European Union. And so the U.S. maybe has the size where they can think about a social contract at their level, uniting all the states in the federation. But the, the main recipes are there and have to do with protecting people in the most basic ways so providing basic safety nets, using the discipline of the market to make sure that you have sufficient competition, that you don't have monopolies and big oligopolies that capture not only the economy, but with a big wealth and big economic clout, uh, they also capture the political systems in their territory. So you need to, to use uh, these various things, protecting people, using the discipline of the market, and imagining a welfare state that is able to cope with globalization. But in many ways, it's not that hard. If you look at Scandinavian countries, they have been open countries for a very long time, and they managed to have very ambitious social protection systems in spite of having very open borders. So it's not as if this was a mission impossible. So perhaps the idea of building a totally new social contract isn't the best way to think about all of this. It might be better and more effective to simply look at each partner in the current social contract and redefine their roles and responsibilities for the current age. Now, for the corporate sector, that means rejecting the neoliberal principles that have shaped business thinking for the past half century. Principles embodied by the influential American economist Milton Friedman. When they declaim that business is not concerned merely with profit, but also with promoting desirable social ends, that business has a social conscience. They're preaching pure and unadulterated socialism. There is one and only one social responsibility of business to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits. That rejection of the very idea of corporate social responsibility 
underpinned the Thatcherite and Reaganite playbook. But it's fallen massively out of step with the public mood, according to research conducted by the Edelman Trust Institute and Harvard Business School. So, you know, here's what now seems to be a global consensus, and that is that business has, largely speaking, two jobs. Sandra Sutcher, a professor of management practice at Harvard's Institute for the Study of Business in Global Society. You know, job one is to do the thing we've always thought business should do, create jobs, products and services to help manage the economy, innovate, create wealth. And that's like 85% of the people who say, yep, absolutely, that's what business should do. 77% say that business has a second job. And that second job is to actually help social problems. This is not a kind of a, a blanket business should do everything. It's a pretty refined view of the fact that business has power across many aspects of citizens' lives. And because of this power, people actually expect them to try to help. And this is new-ish, this remarkable kind of global consensus that business is expected to weigh in on issues like climate change, poverty, inequality, and discrimination of various kinds. And business is expected to actually be able to do some things to help. And the the term you use is stepping up, isn't it? So business actually coming forward and being part of the solution. Yeah, yeah, this is, and there's very clear evidence in the survey, people who responded don't want business leaders to wait for a problem to get out of hand. They actually want business to step into the space and to offer solutions when it can. So this idea that business should step up, is it in part a response, a reaction, if you like, to a lot of the criticism that's been around business in recent years, that it's become too focused on shareholders, on returns for shareholders, and also on, of course, CEO salaries? I would say that it's both a response to that criticism, and you can look at it, I think, as an agreement with that criticism. You know, that the fact that business is now paying attention to things that it might not have paid as much attention to in the past means that a business increasingly thinks of itself as not sort of apart from society, but as a member of society. And so the question becomes, like, what what does membership require and how do you exercise that in a way that people will think that you're kind of living up to your end of the deal? And this all comes back to the notion of trust, doesn't it, which is the main focus of your research, that for people to think this way about business, despite some of the very obvious problems of the past, there must be a level of trust in society that corporations and and businesses actually have the power to make real change. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Anthony, you said that exactly right. So just from a definition standpoint, you know, trust is a willingness to be vulnerable to other people's actions and intentions. And so what we see is that people are increasingly saying that business is such a large part of my life that I both have to trust it and I want to trust it. I acknowledge that it has power over me and I want it to live up to my expectations for what it can do. What are the implications for the idea of the social contract between government and citizens? How does this affect that, if at all? So we have great data that suggests that uh, people want business to act in partnership with government. So, you know, we ask specifically the question of, you know, when will we get better outcomes when business goes it alone, government goes it alone, or when they try to work together? 
41%, you know, of the people said, oh, please work together. And that was like a 4X improvement over business working alone, three times better than government working alone. So people are very practical. You know, they understand that the scale of these kinds of problems, the nature of them, no institution by itself is actually equipped to kind of do the whole job. And so they look at this as a, as a partnership with obviously some adversarial aspects to it, as well as cooperative aspects. So the relationship between business and government has shifted for as long as business has been recognized as an institutional force. And I'm going back like to the 19th century here, where there were expectations in the very dawn of time when corporations were being formed, that they were being formed for a, a particular purpose. So when I got money from people, it was to do something like to build a bridge. And no one business person could do that by themselves. And they got a charter from the state that says we give you permission to build the bridge between this place and that place. And that was the beginning of corporate chartering. It then was broadened to include sort of more general purpose kinds of things as businesses expanded what it was that they did. But there's always been this kind of schizophrenic view uh, and toss between what business is expected to do in society, what government is expected to do, and people's views on that have changed over time. You know, and and so in our research, what we found is that, you know, 70% of people agree with the fact that business can have a material impact on these social issues. And actually, almost a third of them think this could be game changing in terms of if business, but, it, but the wording of the survey question was very clear. If business addressed the resources and attention that it needed to do in order to move these social issues forward, then people said, we really would like to see business do that. And we think that if they did that, it could have a dramatic effect on our ability to deal with these kinds of issues. So a healthy social contract should emphasise greater cooperation between the public and private sectors to the advancement of genuine social equity. But citizens themselves also need to play a part by thinking about the good of the populace as a whole. Still, these are times in which individualism is prized and some within society explicitly push back against the very thought of conforming to any form of greater good. Digital nomads is a term used for people who leave their country of origin to work and live on the move. Anthropologist Dave Cook. In terms of digital nomads and the social contract, digital nomads are trying to escape, you know, the idea of the nation state. You know, a lot of digital nomads talk about the idea of a country or nation state being outdated and wanting to depart from it. They tend to be young, so... They tend to think less about things like pensions and healthcare. As people stay longer in the lifestyle, these things do become more important. And there are companies catering for digital nomads, providing insurance services, not just travel insurance, but health insurance and other types of insurance, which you can kind of see as a private sector version of the nation state. And I think one of the things that I found interesting in my research, because the project has been going on for nearly a decade now, is that people start off with these ideas of mobility and being outside the social contract. 
But as time goes on, they do get embroiled and drawn back into the social contract. So COVID-19 was perhaps one of the most interesting examples here. Some digital nomads did stay in places like Thailand, but they were really the the minority. Most people did go home so that they can access welfare states and healthcare. You know, many Western countries did give people, you know, sort of like basic incomes and access to vaccinations. So it's really, really interesting that digital nomads, you know, did very much reject the social contract before COVID-19, but then took advantage of it when the pandemic hit. Now, post-pandemic, it's really turbocharged the movement and people are really rejecting the social contract again. So it's at times of crisis where the social contract or the value of it is perceived to be useful. But here's a question. Even if you can escape the social contract of your country of origin, aren't you still bound by the rules and, in effect, the social contract of the nation in which you choose to reside? Dave Cook again. We're getting into notions of flag theory here and people leveraging different financial rules in different places. So some of the first digital nomad and remote work visas were launched by Caribbean nation states. And those locations and those jurisdictions have a history of trying to attract high net worth individuals you know, provide a place where they can put their money and engage in tax avoidance schemes. So I think that's quite interesting that some of those first visas came from those places. Some of the digital nomads I've been working with in my research study do extricate themselves from, say, the UK or Australia, and they set up businesses in places like Cyprus or in Caribbean nation states. And they start to create these really complex strategies to try and, you know, be an international, global, cosmopolitan person. I mean, billionaires and millionaires have been doing this, you know, for decades, for for many, many years. What we're seeing here with digital nomads are people who are on more moderate means saying, I want to really play with these systems to try and become a global person. And one of the things that I found in my research study is that in order to become a free global person, you really have to understand and engage with the state bureaucracies that you're coming from in order to master them, in order to escape from them. And do this really, really well is really hard and you really have to manage the bureaucracies and it's not for everybody. So a lot of people do fail. They stop talking about their lifestyle on social media and then they end up going home and, you know, they haven't realised their dream. Dave Cook at University College London. So there will always be those who seek to set themselves apart from society, even if they find it useful to occasionally draw upon its resources. But back to our central question, how do you bring increased relevance to the idea of the social contract? Professor Mark Flaubert at the Paris School of Economics is the coordinator of a network called the International Panel on Social Progress. And its modest ambition is to quote, rethink society for the 21st century. So the term social progress, it was chosen to insist on the positive vision that we want to promote. Its creation came when several of us wanted to uh, work more on the issue of societal institutions and societal arrangements, so the social contract, if you want, and the way in which these institutions are crucial if we want to address many problems, including more technical problems like climate change. So that was the the rationale for 
creating this new panel, which worked initially as a network of academics. We were more than 300 all over the world, coming from all disciplines of humanities and social sciences, including also a few environmental scientists. And we produced this big report. And after having done that, we have waited a little bit for a few years to see how things were evolving. And now we are just restarting and we are changing our formula. And now we'll be really a, a joint a network of academics and actors. And that includes civil society organizations as our main focus, but also international organizations who are very keen on joining our effort because people from these organizations and so on, they tell us it's great if we have some arena like that where we have a lot of freedom where we can really explore things that we are not always totally free to explore in the setting of intergovernmental organizations. And we also have business people, business networks uh, involved in, the, in this initiative. And of course, politicians, especially local politicians, I mean, territorial organizations, cities usually are great places for experimenting novel uh, societal arrangements, uh, social innovation. We want to really have all these people be in the process of selecting the priorities. So now we are, this moment, we are selecting the main priorities on which we will work. And instead of just doing a big report, we'll do focused reports on very specific issues so that we can be really part of the conversation at the time when these issues are discussed in various policy circles. And if you're interested in the IPSP's work so far, you'll find a link on the Future Tense website. For Aaron Kramer, building a better social contract involves self-reflection. And being honest, in identifying the hurdles, that blocks society's progress. I do think we live in a winner-take-all society. You see it in the private sector, you see it in sports, you see it in, in the entertainment world where we see people making amounts of money that we've never seen before. The number of billionaires in the world continues to grow. The gap within countries is growing rapidly, even as the wealth gaps between countries is shrinking. And so that's one question we need to take up. Then we need to get to a climate resilient social contract. And that takes a variety of forms. It is retraining and assistance for people who are coming from the fossil fuel economy as we shift to more of a clean energy economy. Jobs will shift, jobs will change, and jobs will be lost. How can we take care of, of that? How can we address the needs of communities who are finding that they simply are not livable any longer due to flooding, due to rising sea levels, owing to fire risk, and so on, and, and what sorts of protections are needed there, and how can we ensure that climate policies also protect people and communities that face increasing peril. And then the last piece is looking at the question of new technologies. What sorts of privacy protections do people need? How can we ensure that we have advances in biotechnology in a manner that is socially acceptable? There's a lot of innovation that is being done with respect to genetics. Well, is society on board with that? If we have precision medicine, can we take that forward without destroying people's sense of privacy? What about workplace privacy where my activities may be tracked my, by my employer? What sorts of rules are needed? So there's a whole host of questions related to new technologies where we need to find some consensus on what's appropriate and what isn't. So work is badly needed to help advance those principles and embed them in our economic systems and in our public policies and, and frankly, in our social norms as well. And a final question, what are the implications of failing to create new social contracts? 
Well, social disorder, I, I think, is the answer. And economic deprivation. And those two things go hand in hand. I hope we learned some of our some lessons from the 20th century. And we lived through a similar transition just about exactly 100 years ago as the world shifted from an agricultural economy to an industrial economy. Because of the dislocation, because of the loss of livelihoods, people, you know, flocked to extremists extremist political ideologies, and the world was engulfed in flames for most of the first half of the 20th century. Now, out of that came a greater commitment to peace and the social contract that we have today. But the amount of economic and political dislocation and the loss of life that went along with it and the social conflict that went along with it, we have to avoid that. It's too dangerous. The problems are too big. And frankly, if we can get ahead of climate change, if we can have a social safety net that works for people in the 21st century, and if we can create rules of the road that allows technological innovation to flourish in a manner that society accepts, that's the great prize in all of this. So this isn't just about avoiding disaster. This is about actually taking advantage of some of the really inspiring changes and innovations that we're seeing in the 21st century and make them work in a way that works for all of us. Aaron Kramer, President and CEO of BSR, Business for Social Responsibility. We also heard today from Mark Flaubert at the Paris School of Economics, Sandra Sutcher at Harvard and Dave Cook from University College London. Karen Savanovitz is my co-creator here at Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.